way to encourage them. Uh, at that same table, uh, you can sign up to be a volunteer one Sunday this summer in our children's ministry where you might forego the worship service or forego your class um, and serve. We have great needs. This morning, I talked to Jay Burke. Uh, we were down 15 teachers this morning. Uh, that's a lot for our, our kids. So uh, we need a lot of people just to be available. We have a lot of summer sickness and a lot of summer absences. Um, and again, I'm, I haven't figured it out yet. People are absent, but their children still make it to church somehow, mysteriously. So we need your help. Um, at that same table, when you write a note for Stephanie, if you would sign up um, and help us this summer with that need, that would be great. Um, I, I had the, the privilege to go to our, our high school, middle school camp this week, Creed Camp up in West Virginia. Yeah, we got a few, a few Creedites here uh, this morning. I, I just want to say, you know, what an amazing camp, really great camp. Um, if, if, you, if you have kids in middle school or high school next year, you should encourage them to go. You should, you should duct tape them and send them. Uh, these kids had more fun and had more spiritual challenge brought to them in one week uh, than, than I could have anticipated. Really an outstanding week and remarkable kids. Um, had the chance to speak and then listen to our church's reflection time on the talk. Uh, impressive. Uh, impressive. You do not want your kid to miss this next year. Um, if you can pass off as a teenager, you might want to go next year. The camp is that good. Um, and, uh, and these kids are, are really remarkable. And they, um, they bring in celebrity um, kind of guest uh, leaders. For instance, uh, you've heard of the boy band InSync. This is from Out of Sync, uh, one, of the, one of the leaders that they brought in. Um, so, so they spare no, no expense. And uh, it's... Uh, I can just leave that up there for a while. <laughs> yeah, baby. Uh, it's, the camp is the, every bit that good. So I want to tell you a story that comes from a book. This morning, I'm going to tell you several stories that come from this book. It's called, If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat by John Ortberg. John Ortberg is one of my favorite communicators of biblical truth. Uh, he's a master storyteller. Uh, our family is going to be going through this book this summer. Steph and I talked yesterday about it. Um, if God speaks to you this morning about matters of faith, you might want to put this on your summer reading list. I would, I would highly, uh, highly recommend it to you. And I just wanted to let you know that uh, if you love the stories and the challenges that I'm sharing from John Ortberg this morning, they, they do come from, from this book almost without exception, including this first one. He says, uh, some years ago, my wife arranged for us to ride in a hot air balloon as a birthday gift. We went to the field where the balloons ascended, got into a little basket with one other couple. We introduced ourselves and swapped vocational information, and then our pilot began the ascent. The day had just dawned, clear, crisp, cloudless. He says, we could see the entire valley from craggy canyons to the Pacific Ocean. It was scenic, inspiring, and majestic. He says, but I also experienced one emotion I had not anticipated, fear. He said, I had always thought those baskets went about chest high, 
but this one only came up to our knees. One good lurch, he says, would be enough to throw someone over the side. So I held on with grim determination and white knuckles. I looked over at my wife, who does not care for heights at all, and relaxed a bit, knowing that there was someone in the basket more tense than I was. He says, I could tell because she would not move at all. He says, during part of our flight, there was a horse ranch on the ground directly behind her. I pointed it out because she loves horses. And he says, without turning around or even pivoting her head, she simply rolled her eyes back as far as she could and said, yes, it's beautiful. <laughs> he says, about this time, he said, I decided I'd like to get to know the kid who was flying this balloon. He said, I realized that I could try to psych myself into believing everything would be fine, but the truth was we had placed our lives and destinies in the hands of the pilot. Everything depended on his character and competence. I asked him what he did for a living, how he got started flying hot air balloons. I was hoping for his former job to be one full of responsibilities, a neurosurgeon perhaps, an astronaut who missed going up into space. He says, I knew we were in trouble when his response to me began, dude, it's like this. <laughs> he did not even have a job, he writes. He mostly surfed. He said the reason he got started flying hot air balloons was that he had been driving around in his pickup when he'd had too much to drink, crashed the truck, and badly injured his brother. His brother still couldn't get around too well, so watching hot air balloons gave him something to do. By the way, he added, if things get a little choppy on the way down, don't be surprised. I've never flown this particular balloon before, and I'm not sure how it's going to handle the descent. Orberg writes, my wife looked over me and said, you mean to tell me that we are a thousand feet up in the air with an unemployed surfer who started flying hot air balloons because he got drunk, crashed a pickup, injured his brother, and has never been in this one before and doesn't know how to bring it down? <laughs> then he says, the wife of the other couple looked at me and spoke the only words either of them were to utter throughout the entire flight. She said, you're a pastor. Do something religious. <laughs> he said, so I took an offering. <laughs> but then he says, the great question at a moment like that is, can I trust the pilot? Keep that question in mind. Let's pray as we open the word together. Jesus, I want to address our prayers to you this morning. Reveal by your spirit and your word the glory of who you are and how trustworthy you are to your people this morning. Um, grant us faith to believe. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. When, when I encourage people uh, in reading the Bible, um, devotionally, I encourage them to ask two questions. There's lots of other questions you can ask. People go to seminary, get PhDs, and learning all the other questions you can ask. These two you can get some mileage out of if they're the only two that you ask. The first question that I have encouraged people to ask is, what do I learn about God? Whenever I read the Bible, I like to ask the question, what do I learn about God? In our case, we're in the Gospels. What do I learn about Jesus? So he'll be forefront in the Trinity in the Gospels. And the second question is, 
What does it mean for me to follow him? And if you just read the Bible and ask and answer those two questions well, what do I learn about God? Do I, and what does it mean for me to follow him? You can do some pretty good Bible study. Get some pretty good mileage just out of those two questions. And we want to apply those two questions to three events in Jesus' life that were recorded this morning in the back end of Matthew 14. If you'll open up your Bibles there, we'll start in verse 13, the first story, which we know many of you have heard as the feeding of the 5,000. It goes like this. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. So our story begins with Jesus seeking solitude. Don't miss that. Jesus is seeking solitude. It's the result of what Jake taught us um, so beautifully last week. That um, Jesus' cousin and partner in the kingdom work, John the Baptist, had been gruesomely beheaded as a result of some lewd dance by some girl and an oath he'd given her, and John the Baptist's head was given her on a platter. This news came to Jesus. And not only that, but if you go back to the beginning of that story, we find that Herod has also heard of Jesus' fame, and he thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist resurrected. And so these two bits of news come to Jesus, and his reaction is to seek time alone with the Father. See, because um, if if this was what became of John the Baptist, right, head on a platter, then Jesus surely knew that this meant his own suffering was drawing near. He is burdened with the news of the loss of his cousin, John, and mindful of the suffering that John's own death would herald for him as well. And so Jesus deals with these overwhelming burdens, don't miss this, by extended time alone with the Father. We'll come back to that, but make note of that. It says, when those crowds heard that Jesus was there, they followed him on foot from the town. So Jesus is desperately trying to get time alone, carrying these huge burdens, and the crowds are following him. If you're a mother of preschoolers, you know what this is like. Desperate for time alone. You're putting child number one down for their nap. They just get down for the nap. And child child two comes running around the corner, wholly disrobed, to tell you that the toilet is overflowing. And you wonder, will there never be any me time? Yes. Yes, it's called college. That's... (laughs) That's why we send our children to college, so that their mothers can heal and have me time. Don't homeschool through college. You'll need a break. The crowds are following you, and you get no time to yourself. The typical response to this, if we are honest, is annoyance. 
When people rob us of our me time, it's annoyance, especially should we be facing something as weighty as the matters Jesus was burdened with, the loss of a friend, the very real likelihood of your own impending suffering and perhaps even death. But Jesus does not respond as we might. It says, when he went ashore, he saw that great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Jesus' response to their relentless pursuit of him is that of compassion, a compassion such that he would act on their behalf. In fact, Jesus, intending to spend the day alone in prayer, spends the entire day healing their sick. And this at the expense of his own needs. So our first question, right, what what do we learn about Jesus from our story? We should say we learn that he has compassion so great that he puts the needs of others above his own. That's Jesus. Jesus welcomes interruptions to his me time. And what about the second question? What does it mean for us to follow? Follow a Jesus who is like this. Well, it means that we would put others' needs above our own, that we will grow in compassion, and we will kill selfishness. We'll grow in a compassion that, like that of Jesus, compels us to act. It's interesting. If you study um, the, acts of the, the compassion of Jesus throughout Scripture, it, whenever it says he felt compassion for them, it is always followed by an action on his part. Jesus never has compassion and walks away. In 1994, there was a South African photojournalist who won the Pulitzer Prize for feature photography. And the photograph that brought him the most fame was this one. It depicted an emaciated Sudanese child crawling towards a feeding center under the hard stare of a nearby vulture. Um, The image which so powerfully captured the horror of famine-stricken Sudan in the early 90s drew international attention to both Sudan's suffering and to the photographer. With with that acclaim came questions. People wanted to know what had happened to the child. After snapping his camera, what what had the photographer done to help the dying child? And painfully, the photographer admitted that after spending about 20 minutes framing the shot, he had simply walked away. See, if Jesus cares for the poor at personal expense, then so must we if we follow him. Our compassion must trump our selfishness if we're really going to follow this Jesus. Are you involved in helping those in great need, in some way. What does it mean for you to follow Jesus in compassion that leads to action on your part? It's, interesting. it's always interesting to watch how the disciples respond. It says, now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. And the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go to the villages 
and buy food for themselves. Now, I suppose it could be construed that the disciples are looking out for the needs of the crowds as best they could. There were no 7-Elevens in the desert, and so they know that the people have no access to, to food, and so it's time to send them into the city, they decide. Then again, perhaps they were just tired of the relentlessness of these crowds, which would be understandable. But what's interesting to me is how they address Jesus. The disciples tell Jesus what to do. They don't ask Jesus, hey, have you thought about sentiment? They tell Jesus what to do. Um, it doesn't, doesn't take the form of a request. There's no pro polite Lord preceding it. It's just, hey, Jesus, look, you may have missed this, but we're in the desert. There's no food. We're tired. Uh, you need to send them away so they can buy food in the tent. It's interesting to watch what Jesus does in response to their directive to him. He says to them, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Um, Jesus counters their directive, their plan with his own. You feed them. You're going to find out in just a couple of verses that there were thousands of people there, maybe, maybe as many as 10,000 people there. It's an entire basketball arena full of people there. And the disciples produce five loaves and two fish, and they say, uh, Jesus, we, we think you've miscalculated. Um, their resources are meager. It's, it's barely enough for them. Dale Bruner, I love the way he says this. He says, disciples think they have nothing here except those seven items, five loaves, two fish. But they are counting only the realities that impress them, not the reality, capital R reality, that should impress them most. He says, disciples should always be able to count to eight the Christian faith, he says, is nothing if, not, if it is not a supernaturalism, if it can count only to seven, if it does not believe that Jesus is risen and can do things. And this is where it starts to get really interesting because Jesus orders the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looks up to heaven and he says a blessing. He gives thanks and then he broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Jesus takes their bread, he gives thanks, he breaks bread, and he gives it back to his disciples for them to distribute. There's a pattern here that if you listen to it closely, should sound familiar to you. He takes bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, he gives it to his disciples. Jesus very intentionally here does not bypass his disciples. I mean, Jesus could have broken the bread and given it to the crowd himself. But he wants the disciples to distribute it to the crowd. This is a teachable moment in the life of the disciples. All disciples. 
They all ate. That whole crowd, they all ate, it says, and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Maybe as many as 10,000 people. They all ate, they all ate, and were satisfied. This compassionate miracle by Jesus satisfies them all. And this is what Jesus does. He satisfies. It's a remarkable feast, especially when you bump it up against what happened last week, Herod's feast, right? Remember Herod's feast? It was marked by arrogance and scheming and murder. While Jesus' feast is marked by compassion and sharing and satisfaction. And they pick up 12 baskets full. 12 baskets full. A basket for every disciple. This is a training event that Jesus is doing here. Now, if you do any reading on this miracle um, online or elsewhere, you're going to cr- come across an interpretation that I need to address to you, and that is this. The miracle is that the disciples shared their lunch with the crowd, and then that prompted the crowd to share their lunch with each other. And the miracle, of course, is that they shared. Woo. I'm serious, okay? Better men, better minds than mine have advocated this. You'll run across it. I agree with the commentator who called this interpretation banal and inept. Okay? This is born out of a selective anti-supernatural bias. Okay? If you're, if you're going to say this is just a miracle of sharing, of course, you've got the immediate problem is that disciples knew the people didn't have any food. So what? What are they sharing? There's a miracle here somewhere. Okay. Um, But if it's just a miracle of sharing, then the healings beforehand must have just been something like the distribution of aspirin and Band-Aids. I mean, if Jesus healed the sick, then he just took five loaves and two fish and fed 10,000 people. Um, Jesus is showing the disciples who he is. He's the Lord of creation. It brings to mind that miracle in the Old Testament of Moses and the manna where God miraculously provided, God miraculously provided bread to feed his people. The manna. It brings to mind Elijah's feeding of the 100 with but 20 loaves, and he says, and there will be leftovers in 2 Kings. And so Jesus is saying, one greater than Moses is here. Moses the deliverer. One is greater than Elijah is here. Elijah the prophet. And he is showing them that if they follow him, if they trust him, He is going to use them in ways that they cannot imagine. I wonder, 
what Jesus might have in mind for you if you stop telling him what he must do and listen to him and trust him to do something truly God-sized through you. Orberg tells the story of a fellow named Doug Coe who had a ministry in Washington, D.C. that mostly involves people in politics and statecraft. But Doug um, became acquainted with Bob. Bob is an insurance salesman who is completely unconnected with any government circles. Bob became a Christian and began to meet with Doug to learn about his new faith. One day, Bob comes in all excited about a statement in the Bible where Jesus says, Ask whatever you will in my name and you shall receive it. Is that really true? Bob demanded. Doug explained, well, it's it's not a blank check. You have to take it in context of the teachings of the whole scripture on prayer. But yes, it's really true. Jesus really does answer prayer. Great, Bob said. Then I got to start praying for something. I think I'll pray for Africa. That's kind of a broad target. Uh, Why don't you narrow it down to one country, Doug advised. All right, I'll pray for Kenya. You know anyone in Kenya? No. Ever been to Kenya? No. But Bob just wanted to pray for Kenya. So Doug made an unusual arrangement. He challenged Bob to pray every day for six months for Kenya. Every day. If if Bob would do that and nothing extraordinary happened, Doug would pay him $500. But if something remarkable did happen... Bob would pay Doug $500. And if Bob did not pray every day, the whole deal was off. It was a pretty unusual prayer program, but then Doug Orberg says he's a creative guy. So Bob began to pray, and for a long while, nothing happened. Then one night, he was at a dinner in Washington, and the people around the table explained what they did for a living. And one woman said she helped run an orphanage in Kenya the largest of its kind. Bob saw $500 suddenly sprout wings and begin to fly away. But he could not keep quiet. Bob roared to life. He had not said much up to this point, and now he pounded her relentlessly with question after question. You're obviously very interested in my country, the woman said to Bob, overwhelmed by a sudden barrage of questions. You've been to Kenya before? No. You know someone in Kenya? No. Then... How do you happen to be so curious? Well, someone is kind of paying me $500 to pray for Kenya. (laughs) She asked Bob if he would like to come visit Kenya and tour the orphanage. Bob was so eager to go, he would have left that very night if he could. When Bob arrived in Kenya, he was appalled by the poverty and the lack of basic health care. And upon returning to Washington, he couldn't get this place out of his mind. He began to write to large pharmaceutical companies, describing to them the vast need he had seen, and he reminded them that every year they would throw away large amounts of medical supplies that went unsold. Why not send them to this place in Kenya, he said. And some of them did. And this orphanage received more than a million dollars worth of medical supplies. The woman called Bob and said, Bob, this is amazing. We've had the most phenomenal gifts because of the letters you wrote. We would like to fly you back over and have a big party. Will you come? So Bob flew back to Kenya. While he was there, the president of Kenya came to the celebration because it was the largest orphanage in the country. 
And the president of Kenya offered to take Bob on a tour of Nairobi, the capital city. In the course of the tour, they saw a prison. Bob asked about a particular group of prisoners there. They're political prisoners, he was told. That's a bad idea, Bob said brightly. You should let them out. I'm not, I'm not making this up. Bob finished the tour and flew back home. Sometime later, Bob received a phone call from the State Department of the United States government. Is this Bob? <laughs> yes. Were you recently in Kenya? Yes. Did you make any statements to the president about political prisoners? Yes. What did you say? I told him he should let them out. The State Department official explained that the department had been working for years to get the release of these prisoners to no avail. Normal diplomatic channels and political maneuverings had led to a dead end. But now the prisoners had been released. And the State Department was told it had been largely because of Bob. <laughs> so the government was calling to say thanks. Several months later, the president of Kenya made a phone call to Bob. He was going to rearrange his government and select a new cabinet. Would Bob be willing to fly over and pray for him for three days while he worked on this very important task? So Bob, the insurance salesman, who was not politically connected at all, boarded a plane once more and flew back to Kenya where he prayed and asked God to give wisdom for the leader of the nation as he selected his government. What are you praying for? What are you praying for every day? What are you praying in faith that Jesus will honor his promise and grant that which you are asking of him. Give it six months every day and I, I'll make you a deal. I'll give you the Bob challenge. If you pray every day for six months and nothing extraordinary happens, Jeff Doyle will give you $500. <laughs> Don't tell Jeff he's on sabbatical. <laughs> Welcome back, Jeff. Are you willing to give that which you have, just that which you have, to Christ for him to do with as he wishes? Or are you telling him how to manage the situation? Which best describes your prayer life? So who is this Jesus? And what does it mean for you to follow him? We want to look at a second story. It begins in verse 22. Immediately, immediately following this miracle... Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Now, notice that Jesus 
made the disciples get into the boat. Why would Jesus make the disciples get into the boat? Um, I suppose on one level, Jesus wanted to be alone. We've already seen that. He needed time alone with the Father. And this may simply be one way to get rid of the disciples. <laughs> get in the boat, leave me alone. But I think, I think Jesus is preparing something for them. I think Jesus is preparing for them a kind of test where they get a chance to apply what they have just learned about who Jesus is, the Lord of creation, and what it means for them to follow him, to trust him. Why would Jesus have to make them get in the boat? Why would they resist getting in the boat? Some of them were fishermen. They knew the lake, and I think they might have seen what was brewing. But notice what Jesus does first. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. Jesus is really intent on this time to pray alone, isn't he? He will not let it be robbed of him. Deterred by the crowds earlier, now he makes the disciples leave so that he can have this time. He will have this time. And as the story unfolds, what we're going to see is that likely Jesus spends uh, eight hours or more in prayer in this particular juncture. This is an evident pattern in Jesus' life. So much so that Luke says in Luke chapter 5, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. This was one of Jesus' primary personal spiritual practices. In times of his greatest need, Jesus would withdraw and spend extended times alone with the Father in prayer. So that second question, what does it mean for you to follow him? If Jesus, Jesus, when faced with great burdens, finds strength and guidance from this practice, how much more ought you I don't think it's any coincidence that right in the midst of Jesus training the disciples to have faith, right in between two of the great faith stories, Jesus slips away to spend extended time in prayer with the Father. I think the two are related. Faith comes from those times of communion when you draw near to God and hear from Him. That takes time. When was the last time you spent an extended period of time alone with God, say something the length of a football game? Have you ever done that? Have you done it recently? You go away because you're so aware of your need for God's help that the only thing that makes sense is to get away for, for some extended time with God. You're, you're in that deep. Right? A time when you're willing to clear away all distractions, perhaps even sacrificing sleep, which is what Jesus did, because you need God so desperately. If Jesus did this often, shouldn't this be part of our following him? Now, I know that the very idea of spending a football length, football game length time alone in prayer, you know, three hours or so is really intimidating if you've never done it, especially if, if you're an extrovert. This would be like 
flog me, beat me publicly, but do not make me be alone for three hours, right? Take cheer, be heartened, extroverts. Rob Craig can do this. And if Rob Craig, the king of extroverts, can do this, can learn to do this for the good of his soul, you, you too can learn to do this and be nurtured by Christ in these times. Um, let us help you. Okay? Our pastors are all experienced in this practice. It's, a, it's an essential part of their ministry. Um, and if your small group wants to design an outing, you take a Saturday morning or a Saturday afternoon, you want to go away and do this, um, Get with one of our pastors, talk to Jake, or talk directly with one of our other pastors, and we will set up a time to come and kind of guide you through this time. Um, we've, we've got a rhythm where we can do it a morning and an afternoon, with, where you do it alone in the morning and together as couples in the afternoon. So there are a variety of things we can do, but when we think about what our annual priority is, drawing near to the good and mighty king, um, I would urge you, put this in the mix. Put this in the mix. It's one of, one of the richest things that, that we can do in our pursuit of Christ. At least that's been my experience. Meanwhile, those disciples, the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. They, they, the language here is a bit understated. They are in a dangerous storm. The boat was being, the language there is a, is a word that can be used for torture. The boat was being tortured. It's, uh, Grant Osborne points out that it's a word sometimes used of demonic oppression. Could it be that Jesus has sent the disciples right into the midst of a demonic storm? Indeed, that appears to be exactly what he has done. But he does not leave them there alone. Jesus comes to them. In the fourth watch of the night, between three and six in the morning, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea and they were terrified, they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. So again, it's, you know, it's three, four, five o'clock in the morning. Jesus has been alone in prayer for more than eight hours in all likelihood. And it's entirely possible the disciples have been fighting this storm for a similar amount of time. Okay. Jesus comes to them walking upon the sea, this roaring, foaming, waving sea, and they are terrified. They do not recognize him. They think he's a ghost. Now, if you, if you go on YouTube and you Google walking on water. You're going to see a video by a guy named Chris Angel who walks on water. He walks, uh, I believe he does it in the sea, a calm sea, and he does it across a swimming pool. Now, if you look a little further down the videos, you'll find another video that's done by a masked magician who exposes the trick. And you find out that there's a plexiglass table involved in walking on water. People can swim under the table. Items can be dropped off in between the tables. Um, that's how the trick is done. Now, if, if in fact this was some kind of trickery in the first century, then first century plexiglass was a remarkable thing. <laughs> uh, 
because this was no swimming pool. Remember, this was the midst of a boat-swamping storm, huge waves, and the plexiglass would have had to conform beautifully to those waves and flex. Um, that's quite a miracle in and of itself for the first century to have that kind of plexiglass. No. Clearly, Jesus, again, is showing his disciples who he is. You get a sense for this by the way he greets them. Dale Bruner says, this is no ordinary hello on water. Okay. Jesus is not just saying, hi, it's me. He actually says, I am. Which, which harkens back to the great self-identification of God in Exodus when God identifies himself saying, I am that I am. Jesus is showing his disciples by his works and his words that he is God. He is Lord of creation. Come to rescue them. Worthy of their trust. And you got to love Peter. Okay? You got to love Peter because this is how Peter responds. He answers him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Only Peter. And Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So what do you, what do you make of Peter? Okay. Is this a good thing or a foolish thing? Is this an example of faith or is this a lack of faith? And I would suggest we take our cues from Jesus, who honors Peter's request and bids him come. Now, he does chide him for his lack of faith when he begins to sink. But at least he has faith to get out of the boat. Okay? And, and you have to commend him. He doesn't just jump out of the boat. He says, Lord, you bid me come. You command me to come. And as Augustine said, command what you will, Lord, and then give what you command. So this story is rich with lessons about what it means for us to follow Jesus. Uh, this is the, the section John Ortberg unpacks in that book that I recommended to you. About, it's got lessons about how to exercise faith and not give in to fear. Peter does fall short for sure, but at least he gets out of the boat. He's the hero of the story, humanly speaking. I, I love the way Ortberg puts it. He says, uh, would, would you like to guess the name of the best-selling chair in America? Lazy boy. Not risky boy. Not worker boy. Lazy boy. He says, we want to immerse ourselves in comfort. We've developed a whole language around this. People say, I want to go home and veg out, make myself as much like vegetation as humanly possible, preferably in front of a television set. We have a name for people who do this in, fr in front of TV too, couch potatoes. Couch potatoes in their lazy boys. He says the 11 disciples could be called boat potatoes. They don't mind watching, 
but they didn't want to actually do anything. He says millions of people in churches these days could be called pew potatoes. They want some of the comfort associated with spirituality, but they don't want the risk and challenge that go along with actually following Jesus. Yet Jesus is still looking for people who will get out of the boat. He is looking for someone who say, will say, if you'll pardon the expression, I may be small potatoes, Lord, but this spuds for you. <laughs> that was so bad I had to share it with you. That's just so bad. So, so, first question, who is Jesus? He's the Lord of creation. He walks on raging waters. In the midst of a life-threatening storm, he causes the storm to cease. He's compassionate. He comes to his disciples in their hour of greatest need. He does not abandon them. He is with them. He comes to them. And oh, how he longs for them to trust him and so to us. He does not spare us storms. Instead, he comes to us in the midst of them. He is, as the disciples put it, the Son of God. And they worshiped him. What does it mean? What does it mean for us to follow him? It means to obey. It means to trust. It means to take God-commanded risks. And this is my last Ortberg story. He says, some time ago, I took my 10-year-old son parasailing. The man driving the boat said he could ascend to 400, 600, or 800 feet. How high above the water do you want to fly? He says, there was a pretty big price difference, so I wanted to steer him toward 400 feet. Then my son commented on how the whole idea was a little scary. It struck me that when I was 10 years old, being lifted 800 feet up in the air behind a speeding boat over a deep lake might make me swallow extra hard. And I wanted him to be free of fear. So we talked through his options, and he thought it over for a few minutes, and he finally decided, I'm going to go up 800 feet. I might be scared when I go up there at first, but I'm going to do it because the ride only lasts a few minutes. But once it's over, I'll have it forever. Ortberg says, he writes, it's as though God is saying to us in this story, in the vast eternal scheme of things, your life is briefer than you could possibly imagine. But whatever you do in faith, every time you trust me, God says, whenever you act in risky obedience and jump in response to my invitation, that you will have forever. Go ahead and jump, he says. What made the difference for Peter when he was out in that water? It says that when he saw the wind, he saw the waves, he became afraid. And he cried out to Jesus. When he stopped looking at the object of his faith, and he started focusing on the object of his fear, that's, that's when he had a problem. And again, you can see the connection between being able to focus on Jesus and exercising faith. How critical is this practice Jesus is modeling, sandwiched in these lessons on faith, of extended time alone with Jesus? It is where our faith is strengthened. And so we have moved now in our stories from no faith to little faith 
And I'm going to close with one of great faith. In verses 34, I'm sorry, here's the end of that story I didn't read to you. They got in the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent all around that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. The people of Gennesaret have been described as outsiders, kind of fringers. This is the only story about them in all the Gospels, really. Um, But they did what the disciples had not done while in the boat or on the mountainside. They recognized Jesus. I'm not talking about, oh, hey, that's Jesus. But they recognized who Jesus was, and they acted in faith. They sent news throughout the region. Jesus is here. Bring the sick. Jesus has come. Bring them. They recognized him, and they acted in great faith. They brought everyone to him. Bringing people to Jesus, it's the great display of faith in this passage. So we could answer the question, what does it mean for me to follow Jesus? It means to bring people to him. It means to bring sick people to Jesus. When you have a friend from work or a family member who falls ill, and maybe they're hospitalized, will you go and pray in Jesus' name for them? You don't have to be ordained to do this. You can do this. You can go in faith to your friend's bedside and pray for healing in Jesus' name. What might God do if you take that risk? You can bring unbelieving people to Jesus. When you have a friend or a family member who does not believe, will you love them? Will you speak of Christ to them? Will you model Christ to them? Will you bring them to Jesus? Rob Craig has a great kind of scheme for how this might happen. You pray for them. You raise your flag of testimony. You let them know you're a Christian. You tell your story, the difference Christ is making in your life. And you tell them the story of what Jesus has done. Will you trust God to use you as part of that process of bringing people you know and care about to Jesus? Well, I've consumed every speck of our time. Um, So I'm going to give the worship team the rest of the morning off till the next service. And and let me just close with two questions. What have you learned of Jesus? And what does it mean for you to follow him, to trust him? Let me pray for us, and then we'll be dismissed.